Hey, everybody, it's Reagan Canope and Ben Bowman. Welcome back to the Oregon Bridge. I've known Kevin McCarthy since probably before he was elected. The tools you had to work with members, including earmarks and other things, now are used as a big tool against leadership. And probably the most consequential moments were around 9-11. I was outside on the plaza at the Capitol when they hit the Pentagon. You know, I've been involved in campaigns since, you know, I literally was, I don't know, 13, 15. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening once again. Today, we've got a great episode for you. The Honorable Greg Walden is our guest, served in Congress for 22 years. He was a state representative, a state senator, and also a journalist. He has a degree from the University of Oregon School of Journalism. He did some broadcasting in his younger years that we talked about, did a lot of radio, and owned and operated radio stations with his wife for over two decades. He was also almost the third party nominee for Congress at one point, which you'll hear about on this episode. <laughs> Great story. A story I like to call how Greg Walden almost got to Congress a different way. Because um, <laughs> he still obviously ended up in Congress and just all the details about that story. Super fascinating. We really appreciate Congressman Walden coming on to to give that. So with that, let's just go right into the episode. One quick thing that I do want to say is this is a very politics and story focused episode. Like if you listen to the John Taponia episode, that was super policy focused. We're trying to have a balance of both. So our political hacks are getting uh, some fun in this episode. Our policy wonks are getting some fun in the other episodes. But this was a super fun episode with the congressman and we hope you all enjoy the new year has brought some changes to Harang Long Gary Rednick PC. For decades, our clients, colleagues, and friends have called us Harang Long, and now we're making it official. We have shortened our name to Harang Long PC. We also have moved our Portland office into larger space to accommodate our growing group of legal professionals. Other than that, we're the same as we've always been, a client-focused team with uncommon experience handling matters at the intersection of law, politics, and public policy with offices in Portland, Eugene, and Salem. To learn how Harang Long can help you achieve your goals, check out our website at harang.com. That's H-A-R-R-A-N-G.com. Well, welcome back to the podcast. Our guest today, former and longtime Oregon Congressman Greg Walden. Welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. Thank you. Good morning. We appreciate you making the time. So we're going to go back and talk about kind of your your background and all this experience that you have. But first, I think that you are pretty close friends with the new speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy. And we kind of wanted to ask about your perspective of what went down in terms of how he got to the speakership and the, the negotiation that he had to make to get there and then the challenges that he's going to face over the next two years. What's kind of your perspective as you were watching that? Well, I've known Kevin McCarthy since, well, since probably before he was elected. He was a staffer. He ran, I think, the district office for Bill Thomas, who was a colleague of mine in the 90s and the early 2000s. And Kevin is very focused. He's very driven, very smart. He understands politics better than about 90% of the people in the Congress and understands uh, personal relationships matter. He can probably tell you the names of everybody's kids and their birthdays, and he stays in touch with them. He's a very competent politician in in the ways I would say uh, that are positive, and he works hard. Uh, I can't recite the stat, but I think he was on the road every day in August and went to hundreds of events for uh, Republicans. That's pretty standard fare. And so in the political world, especially in Washington and maybe in Salem, you kind of are appreciative of those who help get you elected. And uh, he was never ending in that quest and smart legislatively and pulling people together. And at times where the conference tended to get divided and it's like it drop down into name calling their knuckleheads or they're this or that, he never engaged in that at all, ever. And uh, instead tried to, to look to the good side of people and bring people together and figure out, okay, how can I, how can I understand this person better and find a useful place for him in the family? And uh, so he really focused on that. And I would say he maintained, he had at times Boehner and Jim Jordan fought, as you saw at the outcome 
of this. Jim Jordan was uh, was Kevin McCarthy's biggest fan and put a lot on the line to help get him across. And so uh, Kevin's talented, he's effective, he's hard worker, and it paid off for him. That's great. I think it'll be interesting to see how he handles that because, I mean, there's always challenges within the conference. I mean, you you helped elect big majorities. He's got a yep. little bit more of a narrow majority. Both bring challenges, I think, ultimately, just different kinds. Yeah, you know, the when I chaired the Republican campaign committee in the 14 and 16 cycles, the thing I get to hang on my wall is we had the biggest back-to-back majorities in the history of the party, including the biggest majority since 1928 at 247 seats. Now, having said all that, you know, that's a job where sometimes you're the bug and sometimes you're the windshield. And I got to be more windshield than bug. But we had a good team. We had good candidates. But the atmospherics really matter, as you both know, in, in campaigns. But that gave us a 247 majority. Think about this. They have a 222 majority if everybody's well and on board. And so that really empowers a very small group of people to be the swing. Now, I was serving when George Bush was president, and I think we had about a five-seat majority. And we did some pretty big things, including I think it was that period we did Medicare Part D, which was very controversial. But we had our president in the White House who you know, when it's your president and your president calls, it's it's a little different drill than when you're you're in the slight majority, but you're in the opposition party still. Did you have people in the conference? This was pre-2010. So were there people like, you know, the Jim Jordans or the Matt Gates or the people who are kind of more comfortable being outside pushing in? Or was it just totally different back then? You know, that's a really good question. And I, I've thought about this a lot over the years. In the early 2000s, Sort of the outliers, I would say, and I don't mean that in a negative way, where we actually had Republicans from states that we can't even spell today, Connecticut. (laughs) (laughs) We had three Republicans from Connecticut. We had fairly moderate, I'll say, by today's terms, Republicans in New Jersey, New York, and New Hampshire. And they were never about throwing a rock. They were more about Help me get to yes. I can't, if I vote for what you want me to vote for as it is, I won't be back. And mm-hmm. so they were more inside the tent trying to figure out how to get to yes. And it'd be a pain in the rear, you know, if you're trying to whip them for the, the, the approved version of whatever it was. <laughs> but at the end of the day, they were trying to help. So how's that different than now? My view is that we didn't have social media then. Hmm. Barely had an internet then. And the tools you had to work with members, including earmarks and other things, now are used as a big tool against leadership. So I can make a bazillion dollars on social media by being the most pure person in the conference because I'm the one that didn't sell out to fill in the blank name. And you saw that during this. I mean, I I was seeing fundraising uh, Mm -hmm. requests flying from certain people in the conference that were holding out during that period. They know how to monetize it. You can do it nationally and easily. And for some people, and I won't name names, you feel like it's more important to them to be on the outside and be the focal point and be the social media star than it is to roll up your sleeves and do the legislative work. Not that they don't do some of that, but it's it's almost like their entire being is about being on the outside. Hmm. That's hard to yeah. that's hard to work with. If so I'm. Going back to your background and one of the things that we'll have covered in the intro is that you did a lot of stuff. I was listening to your farewell speech in the house the other day, and you said that you produced the 11 o'clock news, I think, as a high school student. Is that right? College, yeah. Fresh College student. student you've been school. a radio host. You've been a campaign and congressional staffer, state rep, state senator, obviously a congressman. What is your favorite job, either ones I listed or didn't, and why? Oh, probably being husband and father to the best, because <laughs> at the end of the day, that's really what you have in that's life. True. Something you shouldn't forget. From an occupational standpoint, I don't know. I that's a good. I've enjoyed what I've done along the way. You know, the, I went up to Alaska to go to college allegedly, and did at Fairbanks, and got hired immediately on the radio and TV station there. They had a big void because all the media types had been hired away to work on the pipeline at very inflated prices. So. You know, Alieska and Bechtel hired away anybody with media experience to help in that sector. So there was a great opening. I'd grown up in the radio business, got hired right away and ended up producing and directing their 11 o'clock TV newscast 
six nights a week, I did weather on Saturdays and a radio shift on Saturdays and Sundays. Mm. By the way, one of those overlapped with the other. On Saturday night, I both produced and directed the TV newscast while I was doing the radio show. <laughs> they, got, they got value for their money. <laughs> the studios were next to each other, so I would track an album on the radio side. So, you know, it's uh, Moody Blues, Every Good Boy Deserves Favor, or whatever it was. And then let that go for 15 minutes with one stopwatch, go through the, the studio door into the TV studio and back to producing the TV news. It was kind of a riot, but you got to learn a lot. Anyway, that was wild. I don't know. I, you know, serving in Congress was an extraordinary privilege and opportunity. I got to do amazing things, meet incredible people, both here at home as colleagues and presidents, but also overseas as well. And uh, really see the world and understand America from a different lens from time to time. That was really helpful and important and be a part of some pretty significant legislative efforts over time. I always figured my goal was to get it into law and not to get my name on a bill. So people would say, oh, you know, you only passed X bills or this. They always want these metrics, right? It's like, no, did we get the job done? And the answer mm. is yes, in a lot of areas. So it was great. It was a great privilege to chair the campaign committee and the Energy and Commerce Committee. It was extraordinary to be a member of the leadership team for over a decade. And probably the most um, consequential moments were, were around 9-11. Because I was on the, I was outside on the plaza at the Capitol when they hit the Pentagon. So, I mean, it was it was a pretty amazing time. Wow. Um, so let's let's rewind a little bit before you get to Congress. Um, so your dad served in the state legislature for three terms. How how old were you when your dad was in the legislature? Oh, gosh, I was probably 13, 12, 13, something like 13, I guess, because he was elected in 70. Yeah, I would have been, I would have been 13, 14 when he took out. Actually, there's, if you go back and look in the archives of the Oregonian, I was the kid sitting up in the, in the uh, balcony when Tom McCall's getting sworn in. No kidding. Next to my mother with a, a, a Pepsi or something. Although <laughs> this was my first brush with the, the fake news. Um, I say, <laughs> they said I had a milkshake and they'd specifically asked me what I was drinking. I told them like a Coke or something. I don't know. They wrote I had a milkshake. Anyway, yeah, it's a picture of me kind of on the rail at 14. Uh, yeah, yeah. So when you were, when you're a teenager and dad is in the legislature, were you already into politics at that point? Or was this your entry point where you were like young Reagan Canope and you were following dad around and all that stuff? <laughs> it was, it was pretty pathetic. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I had a, I had a McCall people. I forget what it was called. I mean, it was, it was people for Packwood. It was whatever McCall's thing was. He's, we had little vests and at the County fair, went around and asked people as they pulled into park, if we could put the Tom McCall bumper sticker on their car. And I remember he came to the fair and I got to ride from the gate to the inside in the, in the governor's car, you know, all that sort of <laughs> stuff. And so I kind of grew up and got interested in it, but my folks were both in radio and, and when you're in small market radio, you're just engaged in the community. And so it just was inbred in me, I think, from the beginning that you, you're involved. And so you go to things and you get interested in what's going on in public affairs. And the two came together. And I, yeah, then I ended up being student by president. And um, yeah, so. Mm. So was, uh, was your dad like, was he like a political mentor of yours? Was he around when you started your political career yeah. or what yeah. was that relationship like? Yeah, somewhere. I don't think here it's in D.C. I have a picture of all of us. At my kickoff. Um, yeah, no, he was, I ran for the legislature in 19, I uh, well elected in 88, uh, in a district he used to be in before he was defeated. Uh, in fact, there were three of us that cycle that ended up winning house seats in the districts all three of our fathers been defeated. In. <laughs> no Ray, Baum, Ray Baum out in LeGrand, me here in Hood River, the Dalles, and then Heidi Riken, her dad, Max, over on the coast. Um, and which was kind of weird. Yeah. In fact, Ray's dad was all set to be elected speaker of the house. He just forgot to get reelected. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, my so dad, my dad because... had like three races. I should go back and actually look at the numbers, but it, it, on average were decided by 17 voters. So oh, he, yes. against the same guy. <laughs> so he beat this guy, Wayne Fawbush in 1974 
by about a hundred votes. They ran against each other in 76 and he beat my dad by about in the thirties, I think 34 votes. And then they got dad to run again in 78 and lost by a hundred votes again. So I tell people on average, that's, that's 17 voters, 18 voters made the difference. I was going to say, I think uh, that district, it might be the longest tenured swing district in the state legislature. <laughs> yeah, I came back then, you know, and it's been modified over, sure. over years with different lines. And the politics have changed dramatically. I, you know, I used to win Hood River County with 66% of the vote. And in my final congressional race, I got 33 or 34. Wow. You know, yeah, it's suburb of Portland now. It's appropriate that it ended up getting... Uh, redistricted in with Earl. Earl Blumenauer is now my congressman and we're friends. <laughs> now I can pester him about all the deficiencies around here that he needs. <laughs> That's good. Um, what was that? I forgot to look this up. I feel uh, it, my prep was inadequate now because I was going to ask you about, um, so you had two terms uh, as majority leader out of your three. Is that because one term limits, were they in effect at that point or was that? Uh, no. So my freshman term, we weren't in the majority. We took Larry Campbell okay. as the Republican leader. I, you know, I've been involved in campaigns since, you know, I literally was, I don't know, 14, 15. And then ended up on uh, a couple of congressional races, Vic Atiyah's, Roger Martin's gubernatorial races, primary and then transitioned to Vic's in the general. So I've been around campaigns. Then, of course, Denny Smith, uh, when he took on Al Oman. Um, and so then I was his press secretary. So I came back and got involved in in the races and all um, when I came back and and so played a, a role with Larry. They'd recruited me to run in this Democrat district. And uh, and so, yeah, freshman year, uh, that'd be the 89 session. We were in the minority. And then we we worked and got in the majority and I ran for majority leader and won and uh, did two terms there. Uh, What's it really? like being... Oh, sorry, Ben. I just... I was there as a kid when my dad was serving, so I get some of the stories. What was your experience like serving as as majority leader? I mean, what are your kind of major duties that are different than the speaker? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, having been there when uh, when we were in the minority for one term, uh, we'd go up in the in the conference room, whatever that is on third floor, three fifty nine or whatever it is. <laughs> and, uh, wow, that's accurate. That would be amazing. Uh, and you know, every the loudest person got heard, and uh, you know, you sort of went around the table. When we took over, Larry and I had to figure out our relationship. It was strong and good, but you know, who does what? And remember, it'd been twenty years since Republicans been in the majority. We didn't know how the how the machine ran. We got a lot of flack for keeping Ramona Kennedy initially. She was clerk of the House, mm. um, but she pledged to be fair and be you know independent, and she was. Um, and had we Wait, got. The the Republicans, the Republican caucus wanted you to fire her and hire a new clerk, basically? There were those who thought we should clean house. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and we just decided that she, you know, as long as she was going to play by the rules, which she did, um, that we, we didn't have anybody who knew how to run the house. <laughs> right. And, and so we caught, you know, you know, how it is, you get your partisans that go, you know, wait a minute, we got it. We can't trust her. And remember, she was the former Democrat speaker's uh, daughter-in-law. Daughter, that's right. right. Yeah, so I mean, it, it, you know. It was a so little we, touchy. Yeah, but in the end, she was terrific and uh, called it as she saw Because remember, they uh, clerk in, in the legislature, as I recall, rules on parliamentary questions, parliamentary procedure. I think that's, that's right. right. And they're well, elected elected by the full house, which I right. just learned. Right, yeah. So so we kept Ramona. Uh, Larry and I divided up the the responsibilities and i my job was to kind of be um well not to kind of i i ran the the caucus the day the weekly meetings or daily meetings or however often we met and part of what i instituted uh, with bev clarno as my chief deputy whip was we i actually had her keep track of in order who raised their hand to talk uh and then we would call on them in order uh, which brought you know more people into the fold other than just the loud talkative ones and uh, anytime um, we had bills going to the floor, we had, I think, called blue sheets or something. And if there was a no vote by a Republican in the committee, I wouldn't let a bill go to the floor unless we ran out why. Because mm -hmm. I always wanted to have the fight in the family in buying closed doors rather than devolve on the floor. 
Mm. And so it was kind of funny about three quarters of the time, whoever had voted no was like, oh, I was just having a bad day. I was just ticked off. <laughs> no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Or it was something you needed to go work out. But I wanted to have that discussion in the room. We did uh, planning retreats. We did. We set up sort of priorities, what our goals were, which was really important because later on when people wanted to take us down a rabbit hole, I could literally go back and say, now, remember when we met, these were our priorities. This one's actually not on there. So, you know, how do we keep our focus? And sometimes you adjust it. Larry was terrific um, and a real leader. And it was a time we had a, a she, she is a friend, but was a weak governor, I would say, in, in Barbara Roberts. Um, remember Patricia McCaig, the Princess of Darkness, as I think John Dennis called her, kind of ran the show. Barbara would have been very successful if they'd let her out of her office to do walk around because she's a very nice woman and she could have won over members i think if they'd let her out but they wouldn't let her out to talk to anybody and patricia mm. but um so it, it you know it was an interesting time so larry carried a lot of the burden i would argue of kind of in the leadership role of the state at the time he was really a dominant figure and uh, he worked with with uh, kits hopper very well i remember uh at the end of the probably 93 session uh, i got invited over about three in the morning as we said, he died to go have a toddy with, with Larry and, uh, and Kitzhaber. <laughs> to uh, their credit, they pulled out a list. And at the beginning of the session, unbeknownst to anybody, they had gotten together and they laid out the th three tiers. What can we agree we're going to get done? What do we think we can get done? And what do we just have to do individually we doubt we'll ever get done? They pulled out that list and virtually everything on the these are things we can agree to and get done list, done. About half the things in the second tier weren't done and virtually nothing on that. You know, <laughs> by the way, you have different parties and philosophies. But the fact that they had gotten together and kind of worked that out ahead of time really, I think, spoke to the professional level that Larry and, and Kitzhaber, who would fight like cats and dogs, you know. Uh, but the, the, there's that institutional sort of back. Uh, ground, I think, and support that's so important in these for these bodies to really work. Hmm. So I was going to ask you uh, a little bit and um, about '96 uh, with uh, Wes Cooley. So you were you were working from him. Uh, <laughs> his scandal hits, and then I couldn't verify this independently, but the Wikipedia page says you actually threatened to run as an independent. What was kind of going through your mind when you were? Wikipedia. Is that what? What's be, that? Be, before we get into this, can you explain what was actually going on with Wes Cooley? Because yeah. I think many of our listeners will not be super. That's familiar. a good point. Thank right. you, Ben. Right. Yeah. So Wes Cooley had moved up from California, ran for the state senate. Now here's the, the whole back, 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 back. How deep you want to go? Story. So Wayne Fobush is the guy who beat my father twice for state rep in in the 70s um ken jernstead was state senator he retires um wayne moves up to run for the state senate and i run for the state house seat okay i was going to run against wayne and then and then uh and then ken retired so wayne of course moved up he runs against bill bellamy and wins the senate seat i run against carolyn wood um a business leader from the dows and win so we're in together then phil keesling secretary of state redraws mm -hmm. all the lines but moreover repairs the districts oh interesting so wayne's district rather than going into ben now goes out to john day oh, in the, the Dallas. so just got way redder way redder <laughs> and i've never known why he did that but he did that and it may have made sense i don't but whatever uh, Phil's a Democrat and and pretty independent thinker, and you know he did it. Um, so then this guy that moves up from California named Wes Cooley, who had a vitamin factory of some uh, <laughs> stature in Central in Alfalfa, and cattle rancher. Although his neighbors would tell you his cattle were in really sad shape, and I'm not making that up. He files to run against Fawbush, hmm. and uh, there's a lot of other background, but I end up because I'm out um, helping on, on Wes's campaign. 
as a consultant and uh no wait a minute is that the one i did i did i i helped nice congressional he he runs he runs against Bob Bush. No, I wasn't involved in that one. Um, and it comes out that maybe he doesn't quite live in the district, but he moved a, a trailer and the right. board. Um, still have a California driver's license, things like that. But he wins and, and beats Wayne. All right. Then Bob Smith announces he's not going to run. And or Congressional District 2. Correct. Correct. Thank you. And then, uh, and Wes announces, and he's one of a collection from Medford to uh, Central Oregon. And so Bob says, can you help to me? Can you help, you know, Wes, you know, we got to hold this seat. And so I end up consulting for Wes in his primary. And I said, basically, everybody else is Southern Oregon. You ought to just focus on Central and Eastern Oregon in the primary. You're a town guy, your former, you know, county president, of farm bureau, you're all these things. So he did, and he won. And then more stuff began to come out on Wes. And uh, <laughs> anyway, that, that campaign ended. He won. He got elected to Congress. Well, then everything comes out, you know, that his wife, uh, maybe or maybe wasn't his wife. Her husband had been a military. Uh, I think he was Air Force, died. She was getting widow's benefits. But if she remarried, then she'd be, you know, they're mm -hmm. fraud. So were they married or not? I mean, it's just one thing after another. And that he claimed that uh, he had... He had fought in North Korea, uh, but the records were destroyed. My favorite, I tell this story a lot, um, when when accosted by the Oregonian about this fact that, you know, could he really prove this? He said, well, our records were burned and there was that big fire, you know, in the South where all the veterans records were destroyed. Yeah. And he said, my, if my old sergeant, Sergeant Poppy, were still alive, he could verify. Well, by God, the Oregonian put an investigative reporter on it. Oh, no. found Sergeant Poppy <laughs> in a single-wide trailer in the desert in Arizona. And they ran a front-page picture of this old, grizzled-up guy. with a t I think he had a T-shirt on, holding the screen door open, leaning out, going, I know Wes Cooley. And you can tell Wes Cooley he's a GD liar. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, if you're going to cite a source that you think is dead, you ought to Got to <laughs> oh man! Yeah, that was front page. And so, anyway, this thing's coming apart. It seems Mike Dugan is going to be the Democrat nominee out of. Uh, oh, Deschutes! He, he became yeah. the Deschutes DA later. I think he yeah. was Deschutes DA. Oh, at the time, okay. And, and had a big family presence from Klamath Falls. I think they'd been the car business down there. So he had. He's in the rock solid guy. You know, his wife went on to be in the legislature. Judy Siegler. Yeah, exactly. So he he's running. And it's and and this is after the prime after the filing deadline, so nobody can get in on the Republican yep. side. Wes is the only one, and so he wins the primary. All this is unfolding. It's just you can go look up the history. It's nasty as you believe. And we get to the convention, the Republican convention in June in uh, Le Grand, and Wes is there, and this thing's coming apart. And everybody thinks Wes is going to do what most people would do, which would be apologize and say, I'm really sorry. I need to go straight to my life. I'm going to step down. Oh, no. No. <laughs> he gave everybody the middle finger. Some of the effect, if you think I was married when I wasn't, that's your problem, you know, blah, 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 blah. I mean, oh, he man. just doubled down. He went after him. And, and my wife and our, our young son, we were camping out in Wallawa. Um, and, uh, some of my supporters had been, you know, because I knew a lot of these people had been at the convention. And Camille Lucari from Hood River was had been there anyway. So we got to talking. It's like we're gonna lose this seat, and if we and he won't give up the nomination. So what the hell do we do? So we formed a third party. Uh, by <laughs> we had double the number of signatures in about three weeks. Um, and I said to, to Bob Smith, if you're going to do anything, let me know. But otherwise, I'm going to go do this. No, no, I'm done. You go. And sent me 500 bucks and off we went to the races. Wow. wow. And so there's enormous media attention, of course, because nobody does this stuff. At yeah. the time, did did you think you could win? Or were you just trying to prevent him from winning? Or what was the theory no, of the I thought, case? Here? I thought I could win. I okay. thought I could win. Um, and, or, I, or I wouldn't have done it. Um, and so we we go off down the road, and uh, within about three weeks, I think, we had double the number of signatures needed to form this third party. Bill Thorndike out of Medford, God, who was the other co-chair? Anyway, oh, Felix Tomlinson from here, Hood River. 
Uh, they were the co-chairs of the second congressional district party. That's, <laughs> guess That's a great was, name. Guess who was going to be the nominee? But <laughs> <laughs> so we had it. We were raising money. We were doing all these things. And, uh, and so it's going down. And uh, I had Mark Hatfield and Slade Gordon, two U.S. senators, you know, Oregon and Washington, agreed to host a big fundraiser for me the first part of August in D.C. No kidding. Association of Broadcasters. And I, I think we'd raised a hundred grand, which is a lot of money and had more coming in. I mean, we were really going. Wow. Um, and Newt Gingrich, uh, my friend, and he is, um, told Bob that if they could get Wes out of the race, that he would make Bob chairman of the ag committee if Bob would run. Again. <laughs> so I'm literally sitting in the NAB office when all this goes down and I hear about it. And I s called Senator Hatfield, and you know, I'm just a nobody from nowhere, you know, <laughs> going, this is big league stuff. And I said, so here's what's happening. And <laughs> Bob was in DC. I said, so here's what's going down. What, what, what do you want to do? What should I do? He said, well, did, did Bob committee and support you? I said, well, yeah, he sent me 500 bucks and all, but you know, things have changed. He said, well, I'll be there. And he and Slade left the Senate floor. It was actually appropriations bill on the floor. And they came down, we did the event. And then things began to unfold. Um, and there was a lot of pressure to get Wes out. And on the final day, you could actually withdraw and get your name off the ballot. It was during the convention, the Republican convention down in, I'll say San Diego, maybe it was in California. Mm -hmm. And they finally get Wes to sign the document mm. to withdraw. And and so now it's now Republicans will have a chance to pick somebody. And I pursued that for a, a time being until I realized it really is a professional sport. Um, and, you know, it was made pretty clear um, Bob was going to run for it as well. And I never tend to run against Bob, but I always thought Bob was going to support me, too. But, you know, things happen. Yeah. And so uh, this thing's going down and we get to the Deschutes County Central Committee. In the meantime, I'd been at, I flew back from Washington. There was a press report that Wes said that he would ride, quote, ride the death train, whatever that means, quote, <laughs> to make sure that I was never elected. Oh, my goodness. I was in the state Senate at that point, filling out, oh, by the way, a two year term that was created because of his vacancy to go to the Congress. <laughs> back to our small world story. Um, and so, uh, I actually let the state police know because this guy had kind of an interesting history. So anyway, nothing ever materialized out of that. So we get to the Shoots County Senate Committee, but that threat's kind of lingering out there. And so I'm, I'm actually kind of looking around you know, <laughs> in that area. Um, and the, I announced that the, Bob and I got together before that. And I was not the happiest camper because um, I'd kind of wasted nine months of my life. But um, it did help put pressure on. And I said, I'm done. I never wanted to run against the Republican Party. I we were just going to lose the seat. And I endorsed Bob and I left. Um, and we went camping, whatever. He, he ended up playing it out. And it got clear down to the Central Committee meeting in uh, Medford. And he's run, Perry Atkinson was also running. Perry had just about beaten Bob or beaten uh, uh, um, Wes in the primary. He'd run before. And he was the state party vice chair. I think he was chair of the Jackson County Republicans and it's is his he, committee. Is he related to Jason? Would be mm -hmm. his father. Okay. Yep. Okay. So it gets down to um to the Jackson County Central Committee and the result of that's going to determine who the nominee is. And it's Perry Central Committee. Now I'm not there, but I've heard the story that Bob finally just gave up and went home, said, well, this is over um, that evening. But as fate would have it, apparently the Atkinson folks nominated one too many delegates on their slate, split oh. the vote, and Bob won. Oh my <laughs> God. Went on to beat Mike Dugan. So then in December of uh, 1997, I'm in a bank board meeting. We've bought two other radio stations. I'm done. I'm you know headed down a different path. Bob. Well, he pages me. I'll tell you what a pager is. <laughs> <laughs> Historical website. 
Uh, he goes off and I call him and he said, in an hour, I'm announcing I'm not running again. I'm going to public. He's now chairman of the Ag Committee. Something he's, he's been the majority, you know, first time in 14 years. He said, I'm going to publicly endorse you to replace me. Let me know what you decide. And it, I said, are you okay? Are you, did something <laughs> like, what the hell? And uh, I remember coming back here to Hood River into my wife's little office, our radio station and said, uh, this is weird. Look at what just happened. Don't worry, dear. I'm not going to do that. We just bought these stations. I'm going to run the ones in the Dow. She's going to run the ones in Hood River and well, the rest is history. So uh, I remember calling uh, Gordon Smith and saying, so why did you run twice for the United States Senate in the same calendar year? He's probably the only person that's ever mm -hmm. done that. By the way. Mm -hmm. uh, and he said, because I didn't want to go through life wondering what if. And I, I talked to my old colleague who's about as hardcore political uh, operative as I know, Paul Phillips. Uh, who was yeah, <laughs> Pack West. Said, yeah, I said, so Paul, what do you, what do you think about this? <laughs> He's so straight to the point. He goes, let me get this right. Popular Republican congressman endorses you in Republican primary in Republican <laughs> district. What are you waiting for? <laughs> That's fair. Fair question. It was. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so I ended up ended up running, and, and uh, then did you Perry, ever... Oh, but wait, it gets better. Perry got in. Okay. So him and Wes Cooley decides he's going to run. <laughs> he's back. He's back on the death train. He's back on the death train. <laughs> So I got in in uh, early February of 98. Mm -hmm. I was down, I think, nine points. I had Bob Moore do a poll. I was down nine points. Primary. To who? To Perry? Perry, yep. I was down nine. Had, you know, nothing in the bank. We raised 450000 bucks uh, between then and May 18th primary, and I won by 22, 55, 33. We held west to nine, and there was a fourth candidate. The rest was the rest was history. But I go back to close this little long conversation <laughs> that I'm convinced that if Wayne Fawbush hadn't have beaten my dad back in 1976, <laughs> I would never have been in Congress because when wow. they run again, you know how it's kind of funny how that works, right? So for those who think they can plot their political future, um, think again. Yeah. Before Ben asked the next question, I. Uh, I keep telling everybody because I saw this on 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 social media. So the newly appointed senator from Nebraska is the former governor of Nebraska who just yep. ended his term, Pete Ricketts. Yep. And uh, he ran for U.S. Senate in Nebraska in 2006 and got his clock cleaned by Ben Nelson. And the, all, <laughs> the, 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 the tweet said the best strategy in politics is just run until you win. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. There is that. Well, you know, back to Newt Gingrich ran, I think, three times before he got elected. I know a lot of members that have run a couple of times and some who've yeah. been defeated and came back. So, yeah. Uh, T Tina Kotek lost her first legislative race. Uh, Tom McCall lost his first congressional race before he got a lot of people right. lose first. Abe Lincoln. Uh, uh, we heard about, yeah. uh, we heard uh, our, our last podcast was. Uh, or maybe the last episode we posted was Rick Metzger talking about how Kate Brown and Peter Courtney battled it out in the in their Senate um, conference for the presidency of the state Senate. So, and she ends up becoming governor. Yeah. So, um, I think well, so it says in 2010 you led John Boehner's quote transition team. Um, I assume this is like the equivalent of a presidential transition, but it was from Nancy Pelosi to John Boehner. So. A, what was that experience like? And B, what is Kevin McCarthy doing right now? I'm assuming he's sort of in the middle of this. Um, what is the process? He's so, okay. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was, you know, I, I was deputy chairman of the NRCC under Pete Sessions in 2009 and 10. We took the majority, picked up 63 seats, I think 54 net, and got the majority back. But I'd never really played a role in leadership at all. I mean, we were busy raising our son, the business. I was back every week. So this was sort of a breakthrough moment for me. And I, I don't know why Boehner picked me to do it, hmm. but he did. And he and Eric Cantor, uh, who was uh, the whip at the time, and they said, we want you to lead the transition. And I said, well, what does that mean? And they said, well, to you know, do exactly as you described so I put to, I said, well, how much flexibility do I have? Who do I report to? You know, all those sorts of things. 
And so they said, no, you, you go put it together and, and we'll, we'll work with you on it, but we want you to lead it. The most awkward part was I couldn't say anything ahead of time, but I've never not been like hosting the Republican campaign party in Medford. And I knew I wasn't going to be there because he said, uh-huh. you got to be your election night because we start the next day. And so I, I said, okay, let me think that through. So I did. And we, uh, we put together uh, a video connection into Medford. Now, remember this is 2010, you didn't have Zoom. It was, <laughs> I got a great picture somebody took of Vayner and I in the ho- his hotel room. We'd gone back in the, the, I'll say bedroom and had a laptop set up and we're both poised over the laptop into the Medford party. I said, now I can explain why I'm not there. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, the next speaker of the house, John Boehner. Nice. Uh, so I, we had no resources to do this, no budget, no staff. Uh, so I had to rob staff and budget. My wife was back with me. So we just pretended it was our small business. And literally the two of us uh, went to work on it. We grabbed my personal office staff and some others. And then, of course, the uh, Boehner's office, they had a press guy, Brendan Buck. Uh, to work closely with us and and his team Barry Jackson and others, and so I, I'll tell you one really I think interesting story. Uh, we were down in HC eight in the Capitol. Um, Speaker Pelosi had graciously set that up ahead of time and made the full resources of the House available to us, so I could call and say I need three desks, two dividers, and you know, and they were there. So Ed Cassidy, who worked for Boehner, told the story of that morning. Um, after the election, um, we'd we'd gone in the room. I wasn't there at the time, but there there's a little uh, placard holder outside on each of those doors. And I I created the name, you know, Office of GOP Transition, Greg Walden, Chairman. Why not? You know, <laughs> we'd slipped it in. And Ed told the story coming around the hallway the other way, and and Speaker Pelosi and her entourage were dodging the press, basically coming through the basement and he said she came around the corner saw that placard out of the corner of her eye stopped turned read it and then continued on her way and to me that is how transitions of power should happen she was very cooperative but it was to me that that acknowledgement moment of i guess it's i guess i'm out yeah i'm out and uh she was very gracious about it all and we but the so, you know, uh, we were going along our way. I formed three committees. We revamped some of the rules of the House, some of the actions of the House. I, my biggest uh, probably accomplishment out of all that, being a West Coast member, was to convince the leadership that unless we're going to war, we ought to be able to go away at a set time on the go-away day. In other words, it's either Thursday or Friday that you finish up business. We ought to be able to leave by 3, 3.30. Because if you're coming to the West Coast, you don't have options after that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, it's really easy if you're in, you know, if you're my friend Steny Hoyer in, Met, in, in uh, Carolina, <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you the story on him. But so we did. And I said, and let's stop having votes on the House floor before 1, 1.30. Because the committees meet at 10. You have witnesses. And then you interrupt them with votes on the floor and you can't get your business done. And mm-hmm. oh, by the way, noon, a lot of members, both sides are doing fundraising lunches. So let's get those in. And the same in the evening, leave the dinner hour sort of protected. And so they did all that. One day on the House floor, Stanny Hoyer came up to me and he said, I just want you to know, 434 people like your schedule better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I said, if you want to lower the, the, you know, the frustration level of all offices and especially schedulers, yeah, just put some certainty in the schedule. And they did. And mm-hmm. it worked really well. They kind of got away from it a bit. Hopefully they'll come back. So you served with uh, Speaker Dennis Hasert, Speaker Pelosi, uh, Hasert, I'm sorry, Uh, Speaker Pelosi, Speaker Boehner, and then you served with McCarthy, but not while he was Speaker. Who did you? uh, Oh, yes. And that's right. I didn't write down Paul Ryan. Who were you closest to Boehner or were who were you closest to out of those? Yeah, probably Boehner and uh, Paul Ryan and I uh, came in together in the class of 98. Um, in okay. fact, we were the last two of the last three on the Republican side. The only remainder is uh, Mike Simpson from Idaho. Hmm. Uh, and so Paul and I were very close too. but I just served longer. I'll say longer with Boehner as speaker, probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And did more. 
uh, but Paul and I were, were close as well. Um, Hastert, I just wasn't, you know, up in the leadership and didn't have time to, to go do a lot of the things I did later in, in my career. Um, and so I knew Denny well. Uh, we, uh, yeah, but um, trying to think, yeah, he was the first one. Funny story on that. So I get elected in 98. Clinton's in the White House. We come back to D.C. for our orientation. And we go in the big uh, Cannon Caucus room. And I'm a newbie. And, of course, I'm going to support the speaker. Speaker Gingrich, heck, he'd been out here. He'd been to Hood River. We did events. You know, he's speaker. And he announces he's done his job by getting us, keeping us in the majority. Now it's time for somebody else and leaves. And hmm. like, Uh-oh. That was a surprise. You guys were expecting to elect Gingrich? Well, I was. I was probably not well informed. They'd had it with <laughs> uh, the, the prior conferences. Mary was only there four years, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. And he could read the writing on the wall that he didn't have votes, and it's time to go. So Bob Livingston runs for speaker. He's the chairman of the House Appropriations Committee, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And we all elect Bob Livingston, and we do the freshman member dinner and do all this stuff. And then they send the incoming members home. And then Bob Livingston, it turns out, might have had a little uh, affair, like Bill Clinton had an affair. And Bob <laughs> Livingston goes to the House floor, which tells you, well, and announces that he's going to resign and he challenges Bill Clinton to do the same. And of course, I'm sure Bill Clinton just laughed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Livingston steps down. By the way, that's when they reached way down in the hierarchy to uh, Denny Hastert, who was chief deputy whip, to make him the, the Republican nominee for speaker. Now, here's the funny part. I don't think I was alone. I don't think they ever reached out to the incoming freshman class to ask us our opinion or seek our vote. <laughs> <laughs> so we learned about it on TV or radio. Oh, my goodness. Our new nominee for speaker wasn't the one we would voted for. It was some other guy. <laughs> wow. Um, and then my other question was president. So you served tail end of Clinton Last and year. then um, Obama, George W. Bush and Trump. Did you what were your working relationships like with the different presidents? That's a really mm. good question. Clinton was uh, really a, a very effective politician in, in mm -hmm. a lot of ways. Um, I was down at the White House multiple times in working meetings at the upper second level, uh, the, the family living quarters level um, on wow. some issues. Um, he had us down. I remember taking our son to one of the recordings of the radio. You remember the presidents would do that Saturday weekly radio address. Yep. We stood in the Oval Office while he recorded it. Um, and then I, I took a, a, I got the White House, give me a having autograph, a photo of himself to my son's third, I think third grade teacher who I knew was a big Democrat to say, please excuse me. <laughs> Anthony for missing. <laughs> That's great. That's cool. But he was he was really very effective. And man, he owned you when you when he looked at you, he owned you and you knew it. I, I remember running into him when Hillary was Secretary of State down at the State Department at a Kennedy Center Honors dinner. And I was leading the transition at the time. And and I went over to we kind of bumped into each other and I said i'm reminded him who i was he goes oh i know who you are <laughs> i was so pleased to see that john boehner asked you to lead that transition you're gonna do it. it's like how the hell <laughs> that's a great bill clinton by the way that major is. major kudos. <laughs> so good at this stuff um george w bush i spent a lot of time with as president yeah. uh he was uh, terrific to work with he and his team um down at the white house uh regularly um Obama, just the opposite. And Democrats mm. will tell you this, too. He had a terrible legislative affairs office. Nobody mm. knew anybody. He was always the smartest guy in the room and didn't really need you. I remember when the, we were in a government shutdown, he wanted the whole Republican conference to come to the White House. And, and Boehner rightly said, mm, we're not doing that. We'll yeah. come down as leadership team. So we pile in a bus and get escorted down. We go in. We meet with him in the Roosevelt Room. And Eric Cantor and Paul Ryan and me and Speaker and, and a few other leadership and some key staff. And they're laying out a plan they'd hatched to try and reach a compromise, reopen the government. And it was, it was actually pretty reasonable. And Eric Cantor had actually had, had written it out and he, he reads from it and says to the president, here's what, here's what we're proposing, blah, blah, blah. And the president just keeps going on, just, you know. And I, 
Paul Ryan literally stands up at the table and leans over and says, Mr. President, you're about to miss your moment. Wow. It's like, what, what are you talking about? You're about, we came down here with a serious proposal. Da, 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 da. And he said, what proposal? Oh, the one Harry Cantor <laughs> presented. He hadn't even heard it. Just hadn't heard it. So anyway, we he's going to take that under advisement. He says, okay, here's what we're going to say. You're going to go out to press and back up the hill. You're going to say that the president um, is interested in this and the president's going to do this and that. Talking about himself. And I mean, it's just like, <laughs> we did because we thought there was a plan. Remember, he and Boehner had an agreement to do major entitlement reform and then going to Boehner, Obama walked from it. Interesting. Um, and this continued, but that's that's Obama. Um, but during, yeah, during the Obama years, did you Biden was famously the like congressional emissary from right. that White House? Were you interacting with him at all? No, I wasn't. Paul did a lot, okay. uh, which was ironic since they would run against each other in the vice presidential. Oh yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, and 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 Biden was a legislator. Obama never was. You know, he was in office, but he wasn't a legislator. And and so I remember famously there was this Washington Post story about how the Obama administration had horrible legislative affairs team. So they decide to address it, and they pull together a lunch of the Republican committee chairs and all. Now I was not a chair at that time, but a good friend of mine who was recounted that he gets down there, um, and he might have been like chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, so pretty big committee. He's seated, and this whoever this is that's organized this sits next to him and says, hi, I'm, you know, Joe Smith. Who are you? Ways and Means Committee and you invited me here. I mean, it's like, <laughs> David never, you know, he never said anything. Get this guy on Facebook so he can see who these people are. <laughs> Did that say it all? And Democrats would say the same thing. They'd say, oh yeah, we don't have any relationship down there either. They were, they were just as upset. So it wasn't a partisan thing, it was just bad management. And um, then tr Trump takes office and everything gets back to normal and high functionality and great. Ben. Now I was chairing that, I was chairing the Energy and Commerce Committee. So that may have been part of why I was in the White House so much, but I was around the president a lot and his team. Um, and actually in person, he was, he was very engaging, but hmm. Um, occasionally you had to go squirrel, you know, and, and get him refocused because um, he just goes. Um, but he was he could be very cordial and he could be a real uh, more difficult personality to deal with. But I remember after we passed the House version of that, that health care bill that we got reamed on because we never could get to conference and, and make it better. But thank you, John McCain. Um, <laughs> But they take us all down to the White House because um, he and anyway, so we go in and they peel me and a, a, several of the leaders off into the Oval. And this staff person goes, you're number four. It's like number four. Yeah, you're going to speak in the Rose Garden. Um, oh, wow. The, you know, vice president, president, the you know, speaker and then like me. OK, glad I <laughs> So we roll out of the Oval into the into the Rose Garden, and they got us all arrayed around the podium, and then all the members are back behind, and uh, and they go through it. And it's really funny because this this just tells you the differences in personality. So my friend Mike Pence gets up, vice president, big huge jumbotron teleprompter, and he reads it flawlessly because he's a former broadcaster. You know, he just reads it flawlessly, and it's right on message and on point. And then the jumbotrons go dark. And the president comes up. And it's like, hold on. <laughs> yeah, and then I think it was Paul Ryan and then I think me. That's and that was that was the only time you were ever invited to speak from the White House. No, uh, no, no. Actually from the Rose Garden. No, they'd have me down for various events. Uh oh, okay. to a surprise medical billing, which actually we got into law in a bipartisan mm -hmm. way. The Support yeah. Act, which dealt with fentanyl and uh, uh, um, all the, the drug-related issues around that. Um, the thing I had always, I learned was if I was invited down, I needed to be ready to speak. Because the president was very engaging. There. He'd say, Ben, Ben, come on out here. Say, <laughs> say a few words. And so I was always on guard for that. Because he, wow. uh, yeah, yeah. So... 
Congressman, all right, we're running up on time here. So we have one last kind of uh, maybe uh, bigger question, which is you have been basically the most prominent Republican politician in Oregon for most of your tenure, um, in part because you were very successful in D.C., but also in part because there wasn't a lot going on in Oregon. <laughs> in, in terms of I have this uh, just break in with this stat, Ben. I wrote that from 2012 to 2020, the Oregon Republic, uh, the Oregon congressional delegation never changed. Bonamici won, and then the congressional delegation was solidified for eight years. It would, it didn't change. There was no one who was replaced in that time, so it was very stationary for a little while. Yeah. So, and in, in, in during this time, I remember. I don't know how serious this ever was, but your name would often come up in some reporting about. May, well, maybe this is the time Greg Walden's going to run for governor, um, or maybe he's going to run for one of the Senate seats. Um, and of course, you know, very various different candidates of more conservative to more moderate have tried and all almost always lose by about the same margin. Um, we my my fun fact on that is that uh, Joe Ray Perkins won by a slightly smaller margin than Monica Webby did when she ran against um, Jeff Merkley. So the the question for you is, what is your theory of what's gone wrong in the Oregon Republican Party? Um, why why has it been so hard for the party to win at the statewide level in Oregon? I, I'm not so sure that it's what's gone wrong with the Republican Party, but voter registration plays an enormous, mm -hmm. probably the most important uh, impact on, on election results. Mm -hmm. And Oregon has just moved to the left and blue. I mean, you can look at every wave election, whether it's Congress, whether it's... Uh, president and it just sort of peters out when it gets past burns um you know it just and that's washington too if you look at i think our big sweep in 2010 uh jamie uh um mcleod skinner no no, no jamie oh, herrera butler oh herrera, herrera but yeah, yeah yeah i was going to my former phone um, <laughs> and i think she was the only republican on the west side of the cascades or the sierras that won mm -hmm. And so it's yeah. a it's a coastal thing. Um, huh. Now, are there things we could do better? Yes, um, and there always are, but um, it, it's hard. And I, I really think that if you want to look for successful models for statewide candidates, you need to look at Larry Hogan in Maryland. You need to look at Charlie Baker, Charlie Baker, in yeah, Massachusetts, uh, John Sununu in New Hampshire. Um, there are models for statewide uh, electeds. I mean, Oregon is only exceeded by Washington state in going longer without a Republican governor. And that's only by two years, John Spellman, Vicatia. And, and so we haven't been able to unlock that model yet. And, and if you look at it, um, it's generally a little more socially moderate, fiscally reasonable um, candidate for a Republican, I would argue. I also think at its core, um, Oregon has become a very business unfriendly state. Um, and, and as a result, where some of these states are still into wanting to grow and develop economically, I'm not convinced Oregon is. Um, and, and so you don't have much diversity in, in sort of medium to large size businesses. We can name two or three and that's, you stop naming after Nike, Intel, and maybe Columbia Sportswear gets pretty thin. And there's been so much pressure to, you know, kill off the timber industry and, you know, all of that, that it, it's not the same as, as uh, you know, research triangle in North Carolina, let's say, or the, you know, in, up in, in Massachusetts, what you can appeal to there. I, and I think we've got to get our act together better here, whether you're Republican or, De <clears throat> or Democrat, because when businesses leave, they take their intellectual capital and their and their financial capital with them. And they generally don't issue a press release. They just, leave. <laughs> and I know a lot of business leaders who I wish were still living in Oregon, who now live in um, Idaho, Nevada, pick a state. And, and that's not healthy in the long run for, for the state. And yet it seems to produce the plenty of revenue off those who remain. Um, but the more you tilt toward a, a really progressive income tax as your sole source, um, and you and you don't somehow nurture that underneath with with good strong business growth. Um, I, I think a problem. It's a really competitive country when it comes to big business investment, 
and uh, you know, hopefully we'll see a change. Well, um, to wrap up, I wanted to, the two things I think of when, when someone says Greg Walden, first, of course, Oregon's Republican congressman, because for most of my developing life, you were the only Republican figure uh, in D.C. for Oregon. But the second one is from what actually I don't think is a very good profile of you in Politico, but it contains my favorite quote you've ever given, I think, which is, um, I'm a chairman in exile, dude. Uh, which I just thought was was a great quote. Um, so I didn't know if you had anything else uh, that you wanted to share, but I was just going to wrap with that, uh, yeah, that because was, I thought it was fun. Yeah, that I think they were poking me about running for something else. And and anyway, I was uh, or, or as former chairman of Energy and Commerce, and I I think that was with Bresnahan. But anyway, uh, no, the only thing I I'd, I'd, I'd kind of close with is uh, I after the election, my successor, who I'm a big fan of, uh, Cliff Bentz, pulls me aside and he's pretty dry and quiet, you know, he had this little Cheshire cat, uh, cat grin and he says, I just want you to know what I'm telling people about you. It's like, what, what, what are you telling them? <laughs> he said, well, I'm just telling them you were in the delegation for 22 years and never added a Republican. I've been in office two years and I've doubled. <laughs> so of course in January I, I pinged him and I said, Cliff, I want you to know what I'm saying about you. <laughs> I said, you know, 22 years in the Congress, we always elected our speaker on the first ballot. <laughs> <laughs> really well, good. I think that's a great, uh, a great place to wrap it. Thank you. Uh, Congressman Walden, you've been so uh, gracious with your time. We really appreciate it. And uh, we hope you come back sometime and share sure. some more great uh, stories from the White House or, or wherever. Yeah, there are a few out there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Congressman. I really we appreciate it. it. Yeah, good luck, you guys. Thanks for having Thank me. Thank you. Up.